You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your host, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fox. So the same Welcome all to this week's Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm going to be your host this week. I'm David Grubbs, an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University. With me this week is Michael Farmer, assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. How goes it, sir? Uh, Pretty well. It's the last week of classes, which means it might be the last week I'm uh, teaching. So it feels kind of weird, but hey. Yeah, I kind of... uh... Uh, a, a dash of melancholy with a little bit of the excitement of what come next comes next mixed in, I guess. Whatever that might be. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, dear listeners, please uh, uh, be 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 um, do, doing those things that Twitter likes to decry. Um, thoughts and prayers. Uh, thoughts and prayers. We all want good things for our friends. Also with us is our friend Nathan Gilmore, uh, Associate Professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How are you, sir? I am doing well. I gave my last uh, final exam this afternoon, so now a stack of grading and a graduation ceremony, and I'll be on to summer classes. Wow. (sighs) Well, it's that time for me as well. It's last week of class, and I gave... um, this was the last day for uh, my aliens and science fiction class where uh, we we read uh, some of the uh, some of the Martian Chronicles, Michael, which um, I'm I'm thankful to you for introducing me to those. And so, uh, yeah, we, we had a we had a good conversation. So, yeah, I'm glad to listen- hear that. Yeah. Dear listeners, go 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 listen to that episode. That was a that was a good talk. I'm glad I'm glad it happened. Well, today we have uh, a surprise, as as we said uh, last week. Though I don't know whether we've spoiled our surprise or not. It's not exactly in game, so you know if we spoil it, no problem. Um, but before do you we... want us to spoil in game, David? N- no. Don't don't do that. I, I'm just saying the no spool the no spoilers doesn't necessarily apply if somebody happens if we happen to say what this episode is about before it releases next Tuesday. And the listeners are all like, "This is some kind of weird time loop," because because it's now for them. Anyway, so what's going on in the network? Save me from my dithering. I believe there's a Christian feminist podcast about Captain Marvel. Yes, indeed. And Just I in am... time for Endgame. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I know that uh, the, the CFP uh, adjunct complementarian-ish recorded an episode on uh, called In Defense of Martha, um, the, uh, the, the, the oft-harangued sister of Mary in uh, the Gospel of Luke. So uh, I'm interested to see how that comes out. I've, I was I've hoping all... it would be Martha Washington. <laughs> and then the Sectarian Review is doing an episode on The Good Place, so I'll look forward to hearing that. Very cool. Well, speaking of good places, um, how's that for a segue? Uh, our episode this week is uh, about a little story by J.R.R. Tolkien called Leaf by Niggle. Uh, which was um, published in a uh, a, a pair uh, with his essay on fairy stories, uh, which uh, some listeners may be familiar with. It's it's one of his longest works of. I guess we would call this literary criticism of some sort in his own peculiar way. Um, but Leaf by Niggle is a, a little story that's appended to it, and the two of them together form a pair that uh, Tolkien entitled Tree and Leaf. So, yeah. Had either of you read this before? I had about 12 years ago. I had not. Well, maybe we'll start with you, Michael, because it's newest and freshest for you. What did you expect, and is this what you expected? Uh, well, I can't say it was, because especially with the cutesy title, I uh, I assumed there would be some dwarves in here somewhere, and much to my delight, there were not. It was a, uh, a story set in the real world of sorts. Um, and actually, I was surprised how much I enjoyed it. It almost, David, it almost made me think that maybe I've been wrong about Tolkien this whole time, and I should go read The Lord of the Rings. And then I remembered the dwarves... And I decided not to do that, but uh, I did like the story. <laughs> did like the story very much. Almost, thou persuadest me. That's right. That's right. Uh, I am so happy to hear that because I because I've been racking my brains. Like, can I think of any Tolkien that I could pitch at Farmer and him and him not deplore it? Um, I'm very happy that this worked. He's our own Hugo Dyson. <laughs> yeah, which is what I was referencing. Was it dwarf in that story or elf? uh, elves? Elves. Yeah, yeah. If, if for our listeners who don't, I think I've I've, I've told the story several times because it's it's pretty much my experience reading it. But you know, um, <laughs> he would he, he would read passages from Lord of the Rings to the other Inklings, and Hugo Dyson is said to have exclaimed uh, at one point, uh, "Not another effing elf." Ah. <laughs> <sighs> Yeah. So there's no effing elves in, uh, in Leaf by Niggle, <laughs> and I appreciated that about it. <laughs> Excellent. What about you, Nathan? Uh, was this a good rememberer? Or, or it, good was, it was, it uh, was. Like I said, I, I first read it, you know, probably about a dozen years ago uh, when I was first studying Old English, and so, you know, part of the contract for uh, enrolling in that class is you had to become a Tolkien person, at least for a, a brief <laughs> spell, so... I started reading around and reading his essays, and I read this story and enjoyed it. I mean, what I had forgotten about it is just how subtle the story is, and I'll be talking about that as we roll along. But uh, when people talk about this story, uh, 
what I des what I find is that they talk about things with some certainty that are left very ambiguous in the text, uh, which to me is a testament of how uh, sophisticated a narrative it really is. Yeah, there's almost a oh gosh, an an, an impressionism a. Uh, a kind of suggestion of sometimes of shapes and ideas that might lead you to think you've seen a more solid form than you really did. Right, right. And I mean, I'm, the big one is, I mean, you know, when people narrate this story or when they summarize it, they say, and then he dies and, uh, well, when I was reading, I mean, I, I didn't actually see him die at any point. <laughs> oh, yeah. But I mean, he he goes on a journey in that homo viator tradition. I mean, clearly. Well, That's yeah, I, 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 yes, I, I, I'm not saying that he doesn't die. I'm saying the story doesn't say he dies. Right, right, yeah. Well, let's not. Uh, well, I, I, I don't know. Maybe are we spoiling it yet? Um, I don't know. I he catches say. a bad cold and goes on a journey. So I, I think, I think that pretty much means he dies. Right. And I think this text is old enough that uh, spoilers are fair game. <laughs> well, I, I'm I'm less worried about spoiling the story than I'm about spoiling the 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 conversation as we as we move ahead. I don't want to have all of it at once. Um, but you bringing up Michael, uh, the bringing up the the Homo Viator. Um, that's yeah, that's that's the very first thing. I mean, Tolkien is on record as uh, if I, I I wish I'd looked up his phrase to remember, but it's something like cordially detesting allegory or something like that. Um, in all its forms, I can't remember exactly what it is, but it's a um, the that that preface that he wrote to the Lord of the Rings. Um, he was very down on the line, the Witch in the Wardrobe. Is that right? There was a lot of stuff that he found overdetermined in in the Narnia books. Um, he yeah, he he did not like the uh, sometimes easy one-to-one -one correspondence that you can draw between things happening in Narnia and uh, either salvation history or Christian theological concepts. Um, but yet he writes Leaf by Niggle. <laughs> so, Michael, uh, is he a hypocritical charlatan? Is, does he contain multitudes? Is this not really an allegory? I mean, what, what do you do with that question? Well, I mean, it all depends on what your definition of an allegory is. So if you're expecting something like uh, Pilgrim's Progress, where everything stands for something else and you can make that easy one-to-one -one correspondence, no, I mean, this is not, this is not an allegory. Um, on the other hand, if you're expecting something more like Dante, which is uh, an allegory, right? I mean, Dante explicitly calls it an allegory, uh, yep. encourages you to read it allegorically, I think... And if You're you forget that it's an allegory, he'll interrupt the story and say, by the way, this is an allegory. <laughs> I, yeah. I think I think you're on much firmer footing uh, calling it an allegory if that's what you mean by allegory. Uh, you, you have here things that generally mean, or as Nathan would have it, suggest other things. But it's not like Niggle represents anybody in particular or even all of mankind. He's a very specific person who has a personality that not everybody has. He's not every man. Um, and, and likewise, while, while the long journey 
uh, rather clearly stands in for death. There's an awful lot of specifics about how and why he takes that journey and even where he goes uh, afterwards that I don't think correspond to uh, general principles. So I, I, it's an allegory, but it's an allegory the way a lot of fairy tale type stories are allegories in, in, in the sense that it takes something particular, something that's outside of our experience, and it moves it along um, the eternal in such a way where we can understand it as well. And I don't know if that's Tolkien's uh, expectation of fairy tale exactly, but I think that's what I see him doing and what I see fairy tales doing. What about you, Nathan? Uh, I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and say that uh, Tolkien's alleged, uh, you know, spite for allegories gave me unnecessary difficulties for years. Uh, if you read Lord of the Rings as an allegory, it makes a lot more sense. Uh, and if you read this as an allegory, it makes a lot more sense. It's interesting. I really hadn't thought about this for a while, uh, largely because, I mean, I just haven't spent much time with Tolkien in a while. Uh, but allegory itself, I mean, is as often as not a mode of reading as it is a genre of written text. That's true. Uh, so, I mean, you know, in some sense, uh, you know, the journey of Frodo is literal and allegorical. The journey of Niggle is literal and a- allegorical, precisely because that's the nature of a narrative text and especially of a fairy story. So uh, I, I, I really do think that, you know, uh, certainly you do have, you know, very heavy-handed allegories. You have Everyman, you have Pilgrim's Progress, you have The Handmaid's Tale, but, you know, a lot of texts can be allegorical and literal at the same time. That's kind of the point of having allegorical modes of reading. So I'll, I'll just say to listeners, I mean, you know, if you if you read this allegorically, there's a lot of treasure to be had there. Yeah. There's also a kind of autobiographical allegory here, I think. I don't know that much about Tolkien, but when I read this and, and you have this guy who all he wants to do is paint this enormous picture of tiny leaves and he keeps getting interrupted, I, I can't help but think that that's some sort of self-portrait uh, about Tolkien writing The Lord of the Rings. But maybe I'm wrong. I don't know that much about uh, about his history with that text. Well, even if it's just more generally his desire to be able to spend more time perfecting his own private projects, um, you know, whether it's the whether it's any one particular book or story or project, um, he he was a guy who always had something on the back burner that he was much more in love with than his day job. Um, and yeah, that's that's niggle too. But and that too is not really what people are talking about when they talk about allegory, right? I mean, people don't really think of Ramona Cliff as a, as an allegory, and yet it kind of is, right? You have a thing standing in for another thing, right? Though uh, I, I'm wondering at the beginning, you know, he 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 starts off with. Uh, there was once a little man called Niggle who had a little, who had a long journey to make. And that reminds me, I mean, that, that's so much, that's, that's the beginning of Inferno. Um, it's, it's the opening, it's the opening of 
every man, where every man is called to take this journey that he doesn't want to take. Um, you know, it, it, it seems as if he is inviting allegorical readings of this in a way that may be applicable in The Lord of the Rings, but he's inviting it more here, if that makes more sense. Oh, certainly, certainly. Do y'all make anything of his name? I keep wanting to. Does Niggle mean something? Is that like uh, kind of fussing around about small things? Am I making that up? Yeah, I I, I, I looked it up. Um, it uh, A minor complaint or problem uh, as a noun... Uh, as a verb, to niggle is to to use or spend or do in a petty or trifling manner, or to dwell too much on minor points and trifling details. That actually makes some sense, David, of an experience I had online probably 15 years ago. My uh, username on a certain message board, uh, theooze.com, there's no need to keep it secret, uh, was just N. Gilmore because I didn't realize that, you know, what you put in as your login name would also be your screen name. Uh, and people, when I got overly contentious, they would refer to me as Nigglemore. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will often talk, I will often talk about this, this, the, the small problems in a text that don't necessarily hinder it overall, but are noticeable as the niggling details. Oh, yeah, I've heard niggle, niggling used that way. Yeah. Anyway, I, I, I wonder, you know, is, uh, whether something can be done with that, but it's, it's, it certainly seems to apply with uh, a guy who really wants to get spend his time getting a leaf perfect. Well, Nathan... As we've said, the imagination that made this made Middle-earth too. So uh, Michael has said that there are no effing elves here, um, but uh, is there still anything that the Middle-earth mythos has to do with Leaf by Niggle? Uh, there are a few things, and honestly, I, I, I have a, a sense that I missed more than I caught because I read this kind of in between stacks of exams. Uh, but, you know, two things that really stand out to me. One of them is a, a general ethos of storytelling in which the small and the local matter uh, in cosmic matters. Uh, so, you know, one of the things that uh, is, is really remarkable about Lord of the Rings as a, a cycle of novels or as one grand uh, novel, if you want to read it that way, uh, is that the small acts of kindness and mercy and friendship uh, that, you know, you see on the part of Sam and on the part of Frodo and so on and so forth, uh, ultimately have, you know, just grand consequences for the rise and fall of kingdoms, uh, for the spread and the defeat of evil and so on and so forth. And likewise in this story, I mean, you know, uh, we're going to talk about this at more length later, uh, but there is not a uh, grand battle, if you will, that brings uh, Niggle or Parrish, his counterpart, into salvation, but it's really a small moment, a small act. Uh, so that connection between the, the local and the grand is one thing that definitely jumped out to me. The other thing is that uh, this is a story that balances well in the way that I think Lord of the Rings balances about as well as any story that I've read. Relationships between 
afterlife in the sense of legacy and afterlife in the sense of individual destiny. Uh, a lot of times when uh, Christianity especially, but you know Platonism as well, gets criticized for being exclusively focused on the afterlife, the content of that uh, critique is often that it ignores the uh, strong connections between the living and the dead here in the land where the living still live. Uh, so for instance, if you're focused only on where your individual disembodied self goes once you stop breathing, uh, sometimes people say that there's a lack of concern for uh, your neighbor's grandchildren and so on and so forth. And vice versa, you know, people who are uh, overly concerned with their legacy as they will be remembered. Uh, you know, I mean, I know you're not supposed to talk about him anymore, but the character Frank Underwood uh, from uh, House of Cards is a prime example of this. He is a man without any religion, although he can pretend to be religious, but he is obsessed at every turn with being the one whose name is carved in stone. What's interesting about this story is that, once again, it's the small that gets honored. And second of all, uh, there is a very strong relationship without there being an identity between the legacy uh, of Niggle in the world that he inhabits as a painter and Niggle, the eternal soul, uh, that journeys forth, you know, uh, as the story progresses. So... Uh, and, you know, the I, I should have mentioned this earlier, but, you know, the individual side of Lord of the Rings, of course, is eventually Bilbo and Frodo's journey to the West at the very end of Return of the King. Uh, so, you know, like I said, I think Tolkien's Lord of the Rings uh, narrative balances those two about as well as any that I've seen. And you can see that on a, a smaller scale here in Leaf by Niggle. Uh, but, David, I... I you, all of our listeners know that you do Tolkien better than I do Tolkien, so what else is there to see here? Oh, I don't know that I do it better, because the, the, especially the first one is one I definitely would have said. Um, the second is really interesting to me, and it makes me want to kind of go back and look at The Lord of the Rings again, which, you know, any, any good comment on a text should invite you to go back to the text. Oh, sure, um, sure. And, and I think of, you know, the the legacy... I mean, the, the, the scenes that I imagine are, you know, the mines of Moria and, you know, some of the grand fortresses in ruin that you see where people definitely have an afterlife that the living still inhabit. Right, right. That almost uh, Old English elegiac um, contemplation of ruins mode. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I tend to think of Niggle as someone who would have fit very, very easily into the Shire. Um, and I think his Shire neighbors probably would have appreciated him more than his neighbors in this particular work. Oh, I don't know. Hobbiton could be pretty contentious about oddballs like painters. But they'd probably like him because he, <laughs> God forbid I say anything about Lord of the Rings, but they would probably like him because he... Uh... He's, he's so small, right? Like, th that littleness seems important to me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He, he felt hobbity to me, too. Although I experienced that not as a connection to Lord of the Rings, but I thought, this guy sounds like David Grubbs. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will... I, huh. Will I take that as... I will take that as a compliment. I, I think like, you should. I like Niggle. Um, he's a very small man. 
and can be a petty man, but it's more small in the sense that he's not really trying. He he's he's not really trying to make the big splash. He's you know he he has he has little dreams and he's contented with them. And he wants to be left alone to accomplish them. Yeah. But not so much that he hates other people. I mean, that's what's interesting about him, right? He 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 wants solitude, but there's there's this like force within him that won't let him accept it. He's he's kind despite himself. I yeah. I I really I really love that 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 image of of Niggle as the good man who do, who has who doesn't really in whose heart's never really in it. <laughs> it's um, yeah. That that that's interesting to me. Well, you brought up the idea of fairy tales earlier, Michael, and Tolkien has lots of th- lots of thoughts about those. Um, and one, uh, if I remember rightly, I, I think you've brought this up in a couple of. Uh, before they were live episodes, um, Tolkien's uh, the 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 concept that he calls eucatastrophe. Yeah, I'm sure Altman Schoffer did. Okay, well, one of the two of you. Um, it, it's from his essay on fairy stories, which Leaf by Niggle is appended to. So, what is eucatastrophe, and do you find it here in Leaf by Niggle? So, as I gather. Um... Eucatastrophe is a sudden turn, like a catastrophe refers to like the the wrapping up of a plot. And it's a it's a turn that suddenly goes well instead of suddenly goes poorly, which I think he calls discatastrophe, is that correct? He does. Mm-hmm. So the idea is in Eucatastrophe, everything looks like it's headed for a terrible ending, and then at the last possible second it turns back toward the good and and tolkien's example in real life is the resurrection so you have you have christ being dead for three days or however long the you know 36 hours or however long uh, the, the bible has him in the tomb and then um he he is suddenly and unexpectedly resurrected surprising everybody and tolkien says that in addition to this being a fundamentally christian uh plot twist it, it is also a fundamentally fairy tale plot twist and in that sense the the gospel kind of has the shape of a fairy tale but if you i mean if you think about it the 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 christian conception of the world is that it looks like a tragedy but is really a comedy Uh, if you think of how flannery o'connor's works uh work for example um at the last minute somebody usually dies some sort of brutal horrifying death it looks like a tragedy and yet if you understand what she's doing it's clear that it's a comedy because it's about the acceptance of grace and thus of salvation so that's what eucatastrophe is where do you see it here well i think it's when he goes to the what do they call it the work hospital Mm. he goes to the work hospital it it appears to be a life of unending drudgery unless you have a sense that this is purgatory which i think probably most people reading it do and then just as he has given up hope that he's ever going to do anything else he hears these two voices talking about how he's ready to move on to the next area um, so I, I think that would that would be one place to find you catastrophe. The other place is at the very end of the story, which I guess is where you would expect, uh, where people are uh, people are remembering him, or rather not remembering him. They're talking about how he wasted his life doing this painting that he never finished and that got 
hung up used used for roofs and things like that and then a piece of it hung in a museum but nobody remembered it they're, they're reading his life as a tragedy and yet his life as we realize is actually a comedy a divine comedy uh, you might say since he's gone through purgatory and is entering paradise. Um, I'm not. I'm not sure that qualifies as a you catastrophe though, because at this point the reader already knows. So really, that's more like divine or divine. That's more like uh, dramatic irony. Maybe divine irony too. It's it's dramatic irony in the sense that we know something that those characters don't know, which is we know the actual shape of his life and what appears to be a failure is really a success. So I don't know if, if you catastrophe is a super helpful way of reading this story. I think there are elements of it in there, but ultimately the shape of the story is something else. I will say that in that scene that you referenced, Michael, when he starts to hear the voices... Uh, what struck me this time, and I, I don't remember well enough 12 years ago to know if I picked up on this or not, uh, but the the catalyst for his moving on from the, the workhouse to whatever comes next uh, is that, you know, when the voices realizes that he hears them, the first inquiry that he has is, could you tell me about Parrish? So, I mean, it, it, it that's a very Dantean move in that, you know, his concern for the other and his love for the other uh, is what, and really his prayer for the other, uh, is what elevates him. That's really interesting. Um, if, if I had to trace it down, and I, I think that the temptation to do that, uh, comes from the fact that the, that this story is paired with this essay. And may, maybe, maybe it's 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 unfair but um it tends to be you know uh i i i've i've tended to re read people writing about tolkien and writing about leaf by niggle as if you're supposed to read it with the essay in the other hand and one of the things that that one of the one of the goals i had in this conversation was to see um how well y'all thought that worked um, cause I'm not an, always entirely certain it does. Um, I, I am kind of with Dorothy Sayers in her idea that when a writer sits down to, when an artist sits down to write about artistic theory, they're usually just going to make stuff up that doesn't have, that, that, that has to do with the currents of the time rather than their actual process. That, that's fair. <laughs> um, if I had to locate a moment. I mean, one of the things he talks about with the catastrophe is this this unexpected turn to the good that is beyond the power and control of the protagonist is also a kind of uh, a kind of leap of joy um, that it, it's it, it's there's a corresponding movement in the soul of the reader. Um, so he's playing off of the strophe and antistrophe pairing and making catastrophe a, a third dance move. I, I, I guess I that wow that 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 joke moved beyond me. I think I'm going <laughs> to have to Google some things. Um, and and listeners, I'm sorry, I, I just dropped that without any explanation. Strophe and antistrophe are the two directional dances that a chorus does while reciting their lines in a an Athenian drama. Okay. Yeah. 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 All right. 
Oh, Gilmore, you and your learned justs. Um, um, if I had to locate a point where I react that way, it would be when he sees the tree and he realizes that it's his tree. Um, that, that for me is, is, is a, it's a, it's a movement that I find moving every time I read the story. Is that because it, he had this renunciation and got it back that, that he, he died thinking he went on his journey, thinking that he was never going to be able to finish the painting and it was finished for him. Yeah. I, that, that to me is, you know, his, his ability to let go of that tree is so important to him actually being a meaningfully good person to his neighbor. I wonder if there's a, a Kierkegaardian reading you could do that would be legitimate. Because, uh, you know, Kierkegaard says Abraham's whole thing, what makes Abraham a knight of faith, is that he uh, renounces, he, he decides he's going to have to, resigns himself to having to kill Isaac, but he also thinks that God won't demand Isaac from him or that he'll get Isaac back. But then, as I think about it, it doesn't appear that... Um, that Nigel has any idea that the the painting is going to be finished. And in fact, his outburst when he sees it is, it is a gift. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Tolkien actually settles down and says, it's an ambiguous thing that he just said. <laughs> uh, and it could mean the tree, it could mean his, his, his talent for painting the tree, but he also means it literally. That the tree and the talent for painting the tree were things given. Um, I love that little moment. But, you know, especially, I, I like that, that, that comparison that, that you make, Michael, to Abraham sacrificing Isaac. And also, Tolkien's already kind of prepared us by saying that the cross is, um, uh, the resurrection following the cross is as the kind of ultimate eucatastrophe, because, um, Nobody in the Gospels sees Easter morning coming, um, you know, any more than the niggle expected to receive, uh, to receive back what he had been resigned to lose. I think uh, Frederick Buechner says that God's jokes are so big and broad that nobody could see them coming. I like that. Well... We Christian humanists all love Dante's Purgatorio. But you, Nathan, have probably logged more time with it than uh, either I or Michael. Would would you concur, Michael, on that one? Uh, yeah, I mean, Nathan, do you still read it every summer? I try to, yeah. And I know you did at least at least some of your master's thesis on it. And it was in your dissertation too, right? Uh, dissertation, not master's thesis. Okay, dissertation, not master's thesis. Okay. But I've also Add published on Purgatory and other places too. So yeah, I, I fart around with Dante a fair bit. <laughs> well, fart around with Niggle too. Wow, that sounds wrong. What is, anyway, what is wrong with me today? I'm clearly sleep deprived. Anyway, whatever. Um, what do you think of Niggle's version of Purgatory if you put it in conversation with the great Florentine? Well, first of all, you know, to be asked to comment on Tolkien and Dante in the same episode uh, means that <laughs> so, somebody thinks I'm David Grubbs, but I'll try it anyway. <laughs> uh, so first of all, you know, we've already talked about the workhouse. This is a place into which Niggle journeys in which 
the work does not save him. He does not uh, earn his salvation, uh, as, as my evangelical college students often say at first about Purgatorio. Uh, but like with, but as with Dante's Purgatorio, uh, Nigel is already saved when he starts to work, and he is working for the sake of shaping his soul. Uh, there is something coming that is beyond the workhouse that he wouldn't be able to enjoy unless he did the work. Uh, there's a focus on art, which we're going to be talking about at some length later, so I won't dwell on that for a moment. There's also this business that I've kind of already tipped my hands hand on, uh, that in this journey uh, that Nigel goes on, uh, his relationship with his neighbor Parrish, uh, and, you know, if, if, if that's too subtle for you, uh, you know, it's it's the people he worships with, uh, you know. Yeah. It's the relationships with, it's his relationship with Parrish that really gives the shape to his salvation. And his salvation takes the form of having to defer to Parrish and Parrish's artistic impulses as he, Niggle, uh, you know, continues to do the work uh, around him that doesn't involve that artistic impulse. So it's 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 a very Dantean move, once again, uh, to make the person, you know, whose vice, if you will, is this niggling concern with art uh, to serve someone who is himself doing artistic things. The other thing that, you know, just kept striking me over and over and over again in this story, uh, and again, very Dantean, is that the time that Niggle spends in the workhouse and then in the other stages of this journey before he moves on at the end uh, is both shaped and shortened by his love for Parrish and for Parrish's love for him. This shows up at every turn in Dante's Purgatorio. Uh, people are perpetually asking Dante to mention their names among the living so that the living can pray for them. And I, once again, because my students, if they know anything about uh, those centuries between the 12th and the 17th, they know that Martin Luther, you know, hammered nails into a door uh, because people were selling indulgences and people were saying prayers for the dead. And what I have to remind them of is to dwell with Dante for a little bit and realize that it is the act of praying for another that is the supreme kind of love. When you have God's attention, and of course that's partially allegorical, all of us always has God's attention, uh, but when you are attending to the divine life, to dedicate that attention to another human being is the supreme kind of love, and it's precisely that kind of love in purgatory that elevates people to paradise. Well, likewise here, but in a very small, uh, hobbity way, uh, it is Niggle's concern and love for Parrish and Parrish's concern and love uh, for Niggle that eventually get them through this. And eventually, when Niggle moves on and Parrish does not, it's because Parrish's concern and love for his wife, who is still on her way, uh, that keeps him there, but also keeps him from envying Niggle's further journey. Uh, so so this is a, a story that is Dantean through and through. Um, you know, David, are there any other bits that uh, you would want to highlight? Well, before I poke at it, uh, what about you, Michael? you want to take a swing? Uh, no, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fine. Um, I, I, love, I love the descriptions of the work hospital in which it starts out as, as drudgery, 
but then he comes the the that little that little passage where he comes to uh to take a certain satisfaction in having gotten his work done well yeah yeah um that that like th- this is the moment when where his soul is growing because the Nichols problem was always that he was never focused on anything enough um everything was you know the tree was pulling him away from his neighbor as much as his neighbor was pulling him away from his tree um and it says there's a lot of time where he does nothing at all yeah and so he's he's this uh kind of a, a well-meaning wasted capital i mean this i i i feel very much the the parable of the talents here um but part of what he's doing in purgatory is learning to um make much of his time which is which is a very a very interesting um a very interesting vision of of what it would mean to be fit for heaven um he he needs to become more efficient to be fit for heaven that's <laughs> that 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 i find really uh really interesting but that's the thing that was wrong with him right that that was his vice and so um he's offered a discipline that that mends that 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 mends and uh heals him where uh, in the, in the way that he was um uh astray yeah i mean this is a purgatory that doesn't have seven terraces but 70 times seven right is niggles house with the tree are they still in purgatory or are they in heaven yet i read it as they're they've moved up to the next level of purgatory the, that's basically the, how i read it as well they're, they're still learning they're not there yet but now it's it's ceased to be unpleasant you know, like, like you know, purgatory is all about sanctification. At some point, sanctification stops being a chore and starts being a delight. One hopes. I'll let you know when I get there. <laughs> Souls in fire and yet content in fire. Yeah. I, th- this, this time around, um, I, th- I think previously when I'd read it, I'd thought of um, that place as the outskirts of heaven. This time I read Some it. Sort of Dante's I, earthly paradise. Yeah, something like that. Um, this time I was noticing more the ways in which Niggle and Parrish needed to continue to grow there, and that place was facilitating that. And then the two voices speaking later on, um, saying that uh, that n- the work that Niggle and Parrish do in that place make it one that is suitable for others also to heal and recover and grow stronger um so yeah i I think i think i'm i'm agreeing with you all now well michael um what do you think this allegory or parable or whatever it is has to say about art because it seems to have to say something yeah and so Tolkien's conception of the artist is very famously as the sub-creator, the, uh, the creation who himself creates, and in doing so, uh, mimics God's creation in some way, echoes, maybe mimic is, is too negative a term. 
What strikes me about this story and art is that art is neither all that important nor unimportant. So a mistake that everybody but Niggle makes in the story is to treat art, treat painting as if it's just a stupid thing that stupid people do and there's there's no practical value in it. Um, and, you know, the best thing they can figure to do is to use it to patch up the holes in people's roofs. And um, obviously we're made to look down on those people for thinking that. But at the same time, I get the feeling that Tolkien thinks that patching up people's roofs with, with parts of your canvas might not be such a very bad thing at all. That, in fact, art is much less important than loving your neighbor. And to the, to the extent it gets in the way of loving your neighbor, it might actually be a bad thing. Uh, and yet, again, art isn't dismissed because one reason that you know that Niggle has arrived closer to paradise is that his painting has been completed and not by him. So you have you have the notion that art is something important, maybe even essential, um, but it, that it's not the most important thing, that it's a, a kind of secondary good. And that our ability to create art is limited and will hopefully eventually be filled in by someone whose, uh, whose ability is not limited. Do you think I'm way off? Nathan? I think it's, uh, and you know, you got me thinking about Dante, David. So, I mean, I think Niggle here is an interesting contrast uh, to, ah, I don't know, I'm, I'm blanking on his name. Was it was his tutor Cavalcante in Inferno? Uh -huh. Oh, the, the, it's it's, I, I, it's I, been I, a long time, man. The circle, <laughs> the, his, his tutor is in in the uh, circle of the Sodomites. I think it's Cavalcante. I'm going to call him that for today, listeners. If I'm wrong, go ahead and start typing that email. Enjoy yourself. But uh, when he meets Cavalcante, one of the truly uh, pitiful things about that character. Uh, is that he still proceeds as if his reputation as a poet among the living is important, even though he's in hell. And what he's mainly concerned with when he talks to Dante is giving him tips for advancing his career. Uh, so, I mean, you know, there's all kinds of life pursuits that, you know, you could uh, plug into that narrative and, you know, see the, the, the pathos of it. Uh, but it's interesting in that way because... Niggle's problem with his art is not that he wanted to be famous for it, but that he wanted to do it undisturbed and that he didn't want anyone else to be involved with it. And, you know, when, you know, the house inspector comes and tells him to use the canvas to patch up, uh, you know, his neighbor's roof, uh, it's not that he thinks, you know, this is made to be in a gallery, not in somebody's, you know, roof tiles but it's that I have been working on this and I'm not done working with it yet. Uh, so, I mean, I, I mean, on that level, I mean, it's a, it's a very idiosyncratic view of art. This is an artist who does not want glory. This is an artist who is mainly concerned with, you know, doing the art in a place where no one can see so that he alone is satisfied with it. Or am I missing something there, David? I, I think that, I mean, I think that describes it. He's he's not showing off for anyone. He doesn't seem to have any desired audience beyond himself. Right, and later on in the story, when, you know, Leaf by Niggle, which is a fragment of this canvas, uh, ends up in the museum, you know, the way that it's narrated, it seems like that is incidental to what Niggle himself wanted from this canvas. Yeah. I mean, 
it seems more as if he saw the tree in his mind and he wanted the tree to exist on the canvas. And what's interesting is when the narrator talks about what the canvas looks like, he doesn't have a whole lot of technical skill. Uh, you know, it, it, it comes across as, you know, the colors aren't quite right, the shape isn't quite right, so on and so forth. It really does take that transformation or that translation into, you know, the purgatorial or, purgatorial or the paradisal realm in order to get the form and the color and all those things right. He doesn't have it in himself to do it. Uh, so, I mean, I, I, I think that's another angle on this, uh, that eventually, at the end of the story, and this is one of the glorious moments in the story, it does become art for those who are going to journey through that part of purgatory, let's call it, after Niggle reaches his final destination, uh, but it is not within his power as the earthly human being Niggle to do what he desires to do with that art. Yeah. It, there's a, I, I, one of the, one of the things that I think I feel like we're trying to come to grips here is, um, an ambivalence. Um, not that art is unimportant, but the idea that art could become important and is in Niggle's life in some ways important for the wrong reasons and in the wrong ways. Um, but that it actually really does matter and it matters enormously. Um, Niggle's art has in some way fashioned what comes next. Um, you know, his, his, his art really does matter in, in the afterlife and not just for him. Right, right. I think that's one of the things that separates this allegory, I'm going to call it, uh, from C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce, right? There, you know, the purpose of that vision of purgatory is almost entirely therapeutic. It is almost entirely uh, individualized, right? So that the conversations that happen and the journeys that take place and the pain and the, the enjoyment and all of those things are for the sake of the particular soul. In this one, uh, you know, Niggle and Parrish actually leave behind something that makes purgatory more pleasant for those who come through after them. And I think that's a, that's a glorious addition to, uh, you know, the tradition of purgatorial storytelling. Yeah. Hmm. Well, gentlemen, we have chased, uh, chased my personal rabbits through this story. Um, but I feel like there's a lot still left in here that's worth poking and worth discussing. So, uh, Nathan, yeah, you, you have a rabbit you'd like to start? Yeah, it's not a particular passage in the story, uh, but it's a general impression that I, that I picked up this time that I'm not sure that I did 12 years ago. And that is uh, another one of those places, you know, listeners, you're familiar with my ongoing love-hate relationship with C.S. Lewis. And, I, and I'm realizing as I read this story and as I think about Dorothy Sayers that ex it extends to that whole uh, Inklings, you know, the, the I guess the the Inkling cinematic universe, uh, in that <laughs> they are doing something that I find myself doing theologically. Uh, one of the things that I thought about listening to theology podcasts lately is that I'm really not a Calvinist and I'm not a process person 
and I'm not a Thomist, and I'm not these sort of things, but I seem to do theology, but when I do theology, it tends to be this, this strange blend of homiletics and mythopoetic narrative and philosophy and dialogue and all these sorts of things. And as I read Leaf by Niggle and as I read, you know, the essay on fairy stories, uh, I realize that Tolkien is doing a similar thing. He is, he probably wouldn't call it theology what he's doing, but it is, and it's in that same mode that I find myself operating in. And I don't think it's any coincidence that uh, when people write about Stan Hauerwas, they often find it, you know, maddening that he doesn't have a genre, that he just kind of writes these occasional essays that are sometimes comedic and sometimes, you know, uh, very, very uh, cerebral and sometimes, you know, just different kinds of characters for different kinds of occasions. Uh, I definitely got the primary influence from that direction, but I realized that that puts me in a tradition that includes Tolkien and Lewis and Sayers and all those cats. So, uh, for me, it's a moment of, you know, uh, I guess, self-recognition. Michael, what did you see in this thing? I want to read a, a passage. This is, uh, this is after he's gotten to the, the second level of purgatory or whatever you want to call it. Uh, after a time, Niggle torn, turned towards the forest, not because he was tired of the tree, but he seemed to have got it all clear in his mind now and was aware of it and of its growth, even when he was not looking at it. As he walked away, he discovered an odd thing. The forest, of course, was a distant forest, yet he could approach it, even enter it, without its losing that particular charm. He had never before been able to walk into the distance without turning it into mere surroundings. It really added a considerable attraction to walking in the country, because as you walked, new distances opened out, so that you would now double, treble, and quadruple distances. Doubly, trebly, and quadruply enchanting. I like this notion that the spiritual life is a, a place of perpetual arrival. Um, it, it, it forms a counterpart to people who talk about heaven as if it will be like a, a static place, uh, where, where nothing new ever happens. Well, something new happens. Things don't get old, even when you, uh, even when you're with them all the time, or even when you get up close to them. And I do apologize for my cat squawking throughout my, uh, recitation there. <laughs> I like that. I like that idea too. Um, one of the things that I always, as 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 a kid, I always found frustrating, is that you would see the mountains in the distance, and then when you got up to the mountain, um, it's just a really hard hill to climb up. It doesn't. It it it, it never looked in in close up the way that it did in the distance. But to preserve, uh, preserve both of those. Uh, both of those emotions, I think, is the the freshness of it. I think is a very uh, a very ni- a very nice metaphor. Well, dear listeners, um, I hope that you have enjoyed uh, our little conversation about this little story. Though um, I suspect that uh, it is big enough to contain this conversation and many many others like it. Uh, I hope that you. Uh, took the opportunity before you listen to look to 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 go find it and read it yourself um, if not go ahead and do that in the meantime what are we doing next week 
Well, we're going to talk about commencement uh, services, ceremonies, graduation ceremonies, since uh, all of us will will be involved in some very soon. Rituals, rites, orgies. Well, maybe not orgies. Good Lord, David. I don't know what goes on at HBU. But yeah, I was going to say. Count I, me out. Do you have any jobs open? Yeah, no, I was thinking of synonyms, and, and that one that one just sort of came out, and it wasn't right at all. Oh, well, dear listeners, that isn't what happened at HVU. Um, yeah. So, if you want to write in about Leaf by Niggle, or my inability to control my vocabulary, or Michael's cat, or whatever, uh, you can email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can also uh, post on the show notes on our blog, christianhumanist.org, or post them on Facebook. You can like us on Facebook, and rate us on iTunes, and you know, those various ways in which you can let us know what you think. In the meanwhile, uh, the Christian Humanist Podcast is a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Uh, our press liaison is Kristen Philippic, and our audio editor is Ellen Peterson. You want to say anything, Michael? Yeah, this is Ellen's last week with us. She uh, She's graduating and going off to bigger and better things. So she's uh, she's edited this show for two years, and we really appreciate it. Thank you, Ellen. Thank you, thank you, and congratulations. Well, with those things said, let me leave you with the words of Martin Luther. Let your sin be strong. Let your faith be stronger. <laughs>